This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. This is a substantial, a significant, a meaningful anniversary for a lot of people around here. Also a very frustrating anniversary. I'm not going to deny that. It was 50 years ago today. 50 years ago today. It's staggering to think about this. TVs were black and white. Foster Hewitt was still alive and in his glory. Go back all the things that were going on 50 years ago today that the Toronto Maple Leafs last won the Stanley Cup 50 years ago tonight. Kevin Shea is a hockey author. He's a hockey uh, a historian. He's been, called, he's been called a hockey archaeologist. He's written, I don't know, a dozen or so books on hockey, including one which I read about two or three months ago on Derek Sanderson, which is a terrific book. If you're looking for just a fantastic hockey book, that's one of the ones you want to read. Uh, Kevin has written extensively about the Toronto Maple Leafs. He's including a book called Toronto Maple Leafs Diary of a Dynasty, 1957 to 1967. Kevin joins me now. Kevin, how are you this evening? Hey, I'm doing well, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing well. What do you do to celebrate a 50th anniversary of this momentous occasion? Well, I mean, the cake is downstairs, the balloons are flying here, I've got the sparklers, they burned my fingers before I got on the phone with you. No, I mean, I just think about uh, about a, a wonderful time in the Toronto Maple Leafs franchise history, and think about the players who were involved with it, and think of all the water that's passed under the bridge, both good and bad, since that uh, momentous day. I, I don't want to age you, I don't know the answer. Were you watching that night? <laughs> I was indeed, yes. Okay, so you were old, I mean, I'm not going to ask you your age, but you were old enough at least to have remembered that game. I yeah, absolutely, absolutely remember it. Because I hate to, uh, I, I wasn't, I was not born until about four months after they last won the Stanley Cup. I've not been alive to see the Maple Leafs win a Stanley Cup, which is a little ridiculous. But anyway, I spent a few minutes this afternoon, Kevin, watching online. The they, There's about a 15-minute clip from the postgame. It was from the moment they presented the cup to George Armstrong, and then it was Hockey Night in Canada with Ward Cornell and Frank Selke Jr. introducing all the players. And i got to tell you, not only is it black and white and are the guys all you know old men now, but what a different time in the world of hockey. Well, absolutely. I mean, you watch it now. The, the boards had no advertising on them. You know, the, the speed of the game was substantially different. Players, rather than playing those, those bursts of 30 to 40 second shifts, were, were playing for two and three minutes at a time. Uh, brush cuts when they're coming into the arena, they had on the, the, uh, the gray flannel pants with the, uh, with the uh, jacket with the logo on it. I mean, it was an entirely different time. It's, it's a charming, but, but almost a, a, an island unto itself uh, for that uh, entire era. When you think that you know, just a few blocks away from Maple Leaf Gardens was Yorkville and, and the hippies and the longer hair and yeah, the, yeah. You know, the whole thing, you know, it, it, it just was a, a, a very, very strange time for hockey and a wonderful time at the same time. Well, one of the things, and I want to go through a few of these things that really struck me about this. Um, one of them was, you just talk about the, the players. Terry Sawchuk was interviewed. He's the goalie. Goalies today, as a rule, are going to be six foot two, six foot three, probably 200 pounds. You look at a guy like Carey Price, who's a perfect example. He's a big, big man. Terry Sawchuk was a spindly little nothing. There was nothing to that guy. Well, let's take a look at his uh, his crease mate, we'll call him, Johnny Bauer, who was the other goaltender at the time. He didn't play in that particular game when they won the Stanley Cup, but he was part of the series and certainly part of the team. Johnny's still with us. He's 93 years old. We see him at the Air Canada Centre on a fairly regular basis. And it's hard to comprehend that a, a, a wonderful, wonderful gentleman that small 
could have been one of the premier goaltenders in the National Hockey League. I mean, his hands belie it because his hands are, are massive, but he's just a little man and not very big. And you think, wait a minute, he's standing in front of Bobby Hull's slap shots and, and John Beliveau and, and John Ferguson and all these guys uh, who, were, who were giants of that time. And, you know, he, without a mask, with a, a chest protector that was probably, what, an eighth of an inch thing? Yeah, a I mean, felt. Just, yeah, made of felt. Absolutely. And it's just so funny to think about how things have changed since then. Well, and probably the reason, I don't know the answer, but almost every goalie of that time, the reason they became the goalie is A, because they couldn't skate, or B, because they were the smallest guy. That's exactly if they got thrust into the goal by an older brother or yep. a neighbor or whoever. No, no, you play goal. Come on. You know, and there you go. And sure enough, they made it a career and did very well at it. But boy, it's a different time. Okay, now. let me go through a couple other things, though, that really struck me, Kevin, about that video and that time. First of all, George Armstrong, who was the captain, scored, everyone knows, scored the empty net goal to seal the thing. And that's the goal that's always replayed. When he went up, Clarence Campbell, first of all, Clarence Campbell, who was the president of the NHL at the time, gives perhaps the most unexcited, (laughs) flat, almost dismissive congratulatory speech. He doesn't even call it the Maple Leafs. He calls it the Toronto Hockey Club over and over again. But anyway, George Armstrong, he just says, and would the captain, doesn't even say his name, he says, would the captain please come up and get the cup? So George Armstrong skates up. First thing that strikes me, they don't back then, they didn't back then lift the cup overhead like you see the guys do now. George Armstrong picked it up like a giant goblet, rested it in the cradle of his arm, and just held it like that. There was nobody who did the skate around the ice holding it overhead like a champion. Now, several years earlier, uh, Ted Lindsay with the Detroit Red Wings was the first one to take the cup around and show it to all the fans. But it wasn't a tradition that it, people did on a regular basis, as you saw in that film clip as well. It just, so much was different. I mean, there was no pomp and circumstance. No. Right? Uh, Clarence Campbell, who was a, a lawyer and, and had uh, worked on the Nazi trials, the Nuremberg trials and things. Very, did he really? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Wow. And, and just a calm placid sort of man and he approached the job with the national hockey league the same way so so yeah just entirely different but there's a charm to seeing it that way because it's so different than what we know today sure it is now when the cup comes out and you know when they bring the thing out there's the lights flashing and the music is blaring and the spotlight is on as the uh, the guys you know the keepers of the cup bring it out and, and back then the cup is sitting on the ice on a table the crowd is almost silent the players are just sort of standing around milling around it it looks like they just won a men's league championship really it yeah. does it, it gets, it's so understated compared to what it is today yeah, I mean, the celebration certainly would have picked up once they got to the dressing room and the champagne course would have <laughs> yep. popped, et cetera, et cetera. But on the ice, it was business as usual almost, and oh, they were certainly excited. But if you recall, George Armstrong has to wave the team to come over. Come on, guys, come on. They weren't all crowded around at that time. They all didn't take a turn around the ice by any means. He His was the only was one to touch it. With him. Yeah, yeah, he was exactly. the only one to touch the cup. Now, that's another one. I've always heard that the tradition of gathering the team around the cup for a photo at center ice was done by Wayne Gretzky the last year he was with the Oilers, that he knew he was going to be traded, and so he said, hey, everybody, come on in here and let's have a picture. That was not the case because George Armstrong did that exact thing, and they all gathered around the cup at center ice at Maple Leaf Gardens and posed for a picture, just like they did years later for Gretzky. They absolutely did. The only difference was it wasn't down down on the ice with the the Stanley Cup right there and all the team uh, support staff management etc. Like Gretzky did, uh, it wasn't quite the same. But he, he did in fact call everybody over, all of his teammates over, and they celebrated standing around the cup at that time and had a lot of fun. 
talking with Kevin Shea, author of a number of hockey books, and uh, including one on the Leaf Dynasty of 57 to 67. Um, and tonight, of course, is the anniversary of the Leafs' last winning the Cup 50 years ago tonight. One of the things that I wonder, in addition to the fact that the Leafs won the Cup, which of course is going to make this a fond memory for most Leaf fans, I wonder if the fact that when you look at the lineup of who was on the ice for Toronto for that team, you got Mahovlich, Horton, Keon, Sawchuk, we talked about Bauer, uh, George Armstrong, uh, Stanley, Pulford. There have not been too many teams that I can think of that have worn Toronto Maple Leaf uniforms since then that have had that kind of star power either. That was an unusual team, and I wonder how much of that makes this a particularly fond memory for those who were around to see that. Well, I think you're absolutely right. First off, all of the all the team members that you just named are in the Hockey Hall of Fame as well. So, so it was a very, very strong team. But the other thing that you have to remember is that 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 last buzzer that went off in that game was the very, very end of the original six era. Mm. The uh, the next fall, it was uh, doubled in size. The National Hockey League was doubled in size and had twelve teams in it, and it was an entirely different. It was a different era that began different than what we know today as well, but it was a different era. So that was the end of it. And players played well into their 30s and in some cases 40s too, which is not necessarily the case today, but a lot of the people that you mentioned there were well into the the twilights of their career. They call them the the over-the-hill gang because they they were sometimes reclamation projects from other teams who felt that they were at the end of their career but were coming back for one last kick at the can, and they got it. And it was a very unexpected uh, Stanley Cup championship that year, too. The Montreal Canadiens were expected to run away with it and actually had reserved a spot at uh, at, um, Expo 67 for the Stanley Cup. The Maple Leafs uh, <laughs> yeah, stole the uh, the cup away from them. In fact, to kind of thumbed their nose at it and, and had it at Ontario Place and and in, sorry into the Ontario Pavilion at Expo 67 in a different place than where the uh, the Montreal Canadiens had expected to. So lots of things. There was a lot of drama involved with that particular team that year. And I, of course, I I forgot to mention uh, Dave Keon. I forgot mm-hmm. to mention Red Kelly, who was on that team. How did that? Now you wrote that book from about the the Leaf Dynasty from '57 to '67. How did that team? the last one to win compare with the ones before how would it, i mean it's it's hypothetical i know but how would it have done in a game in a in a series in a game against the earlier cup champion leaf teams hard to think that they could have competed so so the teams so you know the teams in the 1950s were were not very good they made the playoffs occasionally never got too far Punch Imlac came on the uh, on the scene. People didn't have any idea who he was. He was kind of buried in the Boston Bruins organization at the time, and and they hired him as the uh, the coach and and the assistant general manager. Later on, became the general manager too. But he started to pick up some free agents that he knew through the uh, through the league. So he picked up guys. One of them. Actually, Johnny Bauer uh, was claimed just before Imlac came along, but guys like Ed Litzenberger and Larry Regan and Jerry Eamon, names that you wouldn't necessarily remember very, very readily, but who added a great deal to the team, but they really helped the kids develop. The, the kids at that time being Dave Keon and Frank Mahovlich and Carl Brewer and Billy Harris and these guys who came from the Toronto Marlies, Marlboros actually, and the uh, St. Mike's Majors, who were the affiliate junior teams. They didn't have a draft at the time, but they were affiliate junior teams of the Toronto Maple Leafs. So these veterans that Imlac brought, up, uh, brought in helped these youngsters develop as well. So the team that, uh, that won in 1962 was young and, and had been together for some time. They, it was infused with veterans. Bert Olmsted had won several Stanley Cups with the Montreal Canadiens at that time too. 
And so it was a very, very strong team. The one in 67, well, a lot of the guys were the same guys, but six years later, and, and guys like Johnny Bauer, late 30s, Terry Sawchuk, late 30s, Pulford, Armstrong, late 30s. So it would have been hard to, to keep up with the speed of that earlier team. We only have a minute or so left here, but the other thing that really strikes me as when we talk about this being a different time that is really hard almost to recognize the Stanley Cup playoffs then and now, the Leafs won that Stanley Cup playing 12 games, that whole playoff (laughs) season. And if you look right now, St. Louis, Ottawa, Washington, who are in this year's playoffs, have already played nine games, and they're not even really getting started. They're early in the second round. It, It explains a little bit of why when I've watched this clip today, almost none of the guys, when they stand up to talk and do the interview, look all that beat up or look all that cut up. There just weren't enough games for them all to be battered to bits. So when you talk to some of the boys, I'll I'll reference Dave Keon specifically, he said, you know, really at the time, the team was not very good through the regular season, but they got hot at the right time. Uh, Ron Ellis will echo that as well. Sounds like I'm name dropping. I pardon me, but just guys. No, those are great names to drop. And and just how they got hot just at the end of the season, and they got hot for the playoffs. And again, you're right. They only had to play two rounds. The total they could possibly have played was 14, and they only played 12 that time. So it wasn't the same, whereas in today's league, you know, you have to be consistently good through the season, but you have to be consistently good through the playoffs as well. So, again, a different game, as you've echoed many times, and, and very appropriately, too. Well, as I said off the top, uh, your book on Derek Sanderson is terrific reading for anyone who's looking for a great hockey book to read. Um, I'm hoping you're going to be writing something again soon that I can pick up, but how long until Kevin Shea is writing your next book about the end of the Maple Leafs' endless drought? Well, so I did kind of do that. So the last book I put out came out last fall. It's the the uh, Toronto Maple Leaf Hockey Club official centennial publication, 1917 to 2017. And the very, very last chapter I had to rewrite before it hit the presses and mention that Austin Matthews had been drafted first overall. So I just touched on it because that's all I could do. It came out in October. I had to finish it as of, as of June. And uh, so we touched on it. I wish, I wish I could go back <laughs> and write one final chapter because this past season has just been extraordinary. There will, uh, who knows, there may be a, uh, an epilogue to be written to that book or a whole new one, but I would look forward to reading it if you were writing it, Kevin, because you do great work. I appreciate your spending some time with us tonight. And I appreciate the opportunity and really enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Scott. That is Kevin Shea. You can, uh, he, has, he has a website, kevinsheahockey.com. Uh, S-H-E-A, if you're wondering how to spell Shea, kevinsheahockey.com. That lists where you can find the books, what the books are that he's written, uh, all kinds of stuff about him. I would encourage you to go take a look at that because, again, if you're looking for just a really interesting hockey book, the story about Derek Sanderson, and I'm sure most people know who Derek Sanderson is, one of the most talented players ever who basically threw away an awful lot of his career with the way he lived and some decisions he made and some... Hard living, um, but man, oh man, what a, uh, what a terrific book that is. 50 years ago tonight. Luke, you're not, are you 20, you're over 25, right? You're this, but it's not yeah, quite. 26. Okay. It's almost double Luke's life that the Leafs last won the Stanley Cup. I haven't been alive to see the Leafs win a Stanley Cup. 50 years. If you had said to any, you got to go, got to go to break here, but if you had said to any Leaf fan, on May 2nd, 1967, that this is the last time you will see the team win a Stanley Cup for half a century, they would have 
either laughed at you or if they knew what was coming in the future and how things were going to be done, they would have told you to pee in a cup because they were going to do a drug test on you. There is no way that was going to be the last Stanley Cup for 50 years. Here we are. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Is what happened to Sidney Crosby, and I'm assuming that by now all of you listening have seen the replay. It was hard today not to see the replay. But is what happened to Sidney Crosby simply a risk of playing a high-speed, physical, intense Stanley Cup playoff game that guys get hurt, and if it happens to be Sidney Crosby, so be it. Or was it an egregious act that was worthy of far more than simply a five-minute penalty and a game misconduct to the guy who did it? Well, someone who can help us explain this. He's been in hockey for a long, long time. He's been a player. He has been a coach in the Ontario Hockey League. He has been a general manager in the Ontario Hockey League, most recently with the Hamilton Bulldogs. Troy Smith joins us now. Troy, how are you? Very good, Scott. How about yourself? I'm doing well. So let's go right, first of all, to the point. What was your thought when you saw that yesterday? Did you think hockey player, or did you think, ooh, that's a little bit more than that? Well, I think what you said, there's two parts to it. There's the Ovechkin flash, which we can talk about. But, you know, I really think that it was just a hockey play. Things happen really, really fast out there. I think when you look at the play, there's there's a couple things. Number one, the, the speed of it you know, how Crosby's down. And I think naturally, if anybody's got, you know, any sort of object, if I threw a ball at you unexpectedly, Scott, you're going to put your hands up. And that's what you see Niskanen do. But I think when you don't see a complete follow-through, I think that shows you that, you know, it was what uh, the NHL called it, which is just a hockey play. He didn't extend his arms through to uh, to exploit a player that was in a in a, uh, a vulnerable position, he just kind of stayed his ground, and unfortunately, you know, Sydney uh, took the the brunt of it to the head. Okay, so if let, let's assume that 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 position is correct for the for the sake of argument, we'll say okay, that's fine. That that Niskanen, as he was coming towards the net, suddenly Crosby is in a position that he really can't really avoid him, and and so it happens he he was falling down. My bigger issue, and this has been overlooked today by a lot of people, is what led to that. Because as much as Niskanen's cross-check hit Crosby in the head and may or may not have been the blow that caused the concussion, somehow it seems to be overlooked by a lot of people that Alex Ovechkin took a wicked slash that bounced off his shoulder, off Crosby's shoulder pad and then his head and caused him to start tumbling down. How does Ovechkin get out of this scot-free? Well, I, I think it's it's the end result. Everybody sees the cross check, and you know you're probably better off talking to Adam Graves about this, considering what he went through for much less of a slash back uh, back in the '90s. But yeah, that that's tough. The the problem is is that you know if you nitpick that every single little play that happens in the middle of a game, you know the, it's just too much to talk about. But you're right. For me, that's that's where it starts. That's where he goes down. And, you know, you can argue it any way that you want. The bottom line is with Niskanen play, I, I do believe that it was a hockey play. But without a doubt, you know, the, the slash from Ovechkin played a big part in it. You know, that said, you can't see the, the back referee, but that front referee, you know, I'm sure you can see the swing, but he's probably, who knows where his eyes are at. He may be watching the puck. 
you know, maybe that's how it gets missed. But, but Troy, uh, isn't isn't part of the reason that they have a supplementary discipline system and replay? We've seen it many times. After a game, a referee has missed a call or not made the exact call, but the NHL looks at something and says, okay, you know what? Yeah, the referee was blocked, but that was clearly something we have to take a look at. Why would they not take a look at the Ovechkin one? That uh, I'm not sure, but you know you, you can't reofficiate the game. I can tell you that's one thing that I've been told a couple times that they won't reofficiate it. And you know I, I'm sure if if Sydney had had a broken wrist, you know, it, kind of talking out of both sides of our mouth here, I guess, where you know we're talking about how it's a hockey play and you can't um, give Niskin in a suspension based on the injury. You know, and perhaps that's the reason why they didn't look at it. You know, I, I'm not privy to those conversations, but, you know, I have to assume that because, you know, there was no um, direct correlation other than the fact that it put Crosby in a vulnerable position, that that may be why. Well, okay, uh, two things. One, do you believe, as a hockey guy, you've been around hockey a long time, and in the OHL, as much as in the NHL, there are star players. Do, in this case... Is the fact that the guy who swung the stick, Alex Ovechkin, as opposed to a fourth-line grinder, part of the reason why this is not being looked at? No. I, I, you don't, I don't think, think so? so. I, I don't agree with that, because if that was the case, then I think you'd be arguing that Niskanen does get suspended, right? Because if I'm telling, it, it's a hockey play, right? So because of the hockey play, Niskanen doesn't get suspended. If we're going to use that rationale, then he gets suspended because he hit Sidney Crosby. Okay. So for me, you know, I, I just don't see that as being uh, the argument, you know, and something that they would look into. Let me ask you a second one then. Uh, and, and some people haven't, you know, the, I, I've told this to a couple of people. Some people agree, some people roll their eyes. You look at the swing that Alex Ovechkin put on Sidney Crosby when you watch it in slow motion. How is that swing different from the swing that Marty McSorley put on Donald Brashear, except for the outcome? Uh, well, I think, you know, Marty McSorley, it was definitely, you know, targeted at the head. When you look at the Ovechkin one, I would argue that, you know, the way you got to remember too, like the way that Sidney leans back when he gets the puck, that pulls him lower. And he definitely tries to, you know, you could argue that he goes for the wrist. You could argue that he's going for the leg or the stick. I, I don't know, but things happen so quick. And the way his body's positioned, that's what forces the stick to go up. That said, you know, he obviously does take, you know, a pretty good swing at it. But I think when you slow it down, you know, which I don't have the, the luxury of doing like they would at the NHL office, but, you know, when Sydney goes back, that puts uh, Ovechkin's stick in a position that it's going to slide up his body. And all those things have to be taken into account. You have been in a lot of dressing rooms, probably when guys have been the victim of an injury that you're not particularly pleased with how it happened. I'm sure that that's happened to you before, that you've lost a player and you're not really thrilled that the way they went down. What happens in the dressing room when a guy, is it anger? Is it, is it deflating when one of your best players is now out of the game because of something like that and you don't get the call you want? What happens in the dressing room? Uh, I think it depends on your character, right? You know, like Sidney Crosby, you can't understate his value. He's the best player in the world. I, I don't think anybody would argue that. And, you know, it, for them, I, I think it's different. Regular season versus postseason, it, it has to be motivating, right? They they don't have time. They don't have time for retribution or anything like that. So, you know, based on, on the Penguins' success and the players that they have in the locker room that have, have been through, 
you know, a variety of different things, uh, I think it'll be motivating for them. You know, you look at a guy like Malkin, and you know, I don't have the stats, but, you know, this is a time for him to step up, and I think, you know, in the past he, he's done that. What would you, just before we let you go, what would you describe or how would you define uh, what a hockey play is? Because that's a phrase that gets thrown out all the time. Anytime a discussion like this happens, someone is going to make the case it's a hockey play. What does a hockey play mean? Uh, a hockey play is basically in, in the course of a game, there's different things that happen that due to the speed, you can't stop. You can't stop. So a good example would be the puck goes in the corner. You know, you, you Scott, are, are coming at me to try and take the puck away, lay a hit on, and the way I turn, you know, creates a hockey play where I'm now in a vulnerable, vulnerable position because of the way I've turned, and you're already committed to whatever that play is, and you can't stop it just because of the sure speed of the game. And, and that's what I would classify this from the slash of Ovechkin with it sliding up with the way that, that Crosby leans back to protect the puck, which is part of, of playing hockey, to the end result, which is Niskanen, you know, cross-checking Crosby in the head uh, inadvertently. It's really, I guess to sum it up, a hockey play would be something that is unavoidable due to the speed uh, of the game. But does the NHL and do other leagues by that measure not have a bit of a double standard? Because there are hockey plays that fall into exactly what you're describing that are penalized. And one of them that comes to mind exactly, and I think it was last night or the night before, a puck was bouncing towards the net and a defenseman, just to clear the puck out of the front of the net, batted it out of the air and it happened to go over the glass. And that would be, by that definition, you're, it's a hockey play. You're just getting the puck out of the way. But we say, oh, wait, no, that's a hockey play because you have to be in control of your stick at all times. So why do you have to be in control of your stick and same thing with lifting a high stick and getting it in a guy's face. That's a penalty. Why do we have to be? Why do we have hockey plays in some cases and not in others? Why do you have to be in control one place but not in another? And I know you're not the guy who made the rule. I'm not. No, no, no But but I, I think when you look at it, it's you know we're, we're splitting hairs a little bit, right? Because that's in the rule book. You know, it's clearly stated that if you smack the puck out of the air over the glass, you know, intentionally, not where if it just you know, tips off your stick. But if you intentionally knock the puck in your own zone, whether it's with your glove or your stick, that's a penalty. You know, that that's, you know, no different than clearing the, um, you know, clearing the puck out with a wrist shot or a slap shot. You're in control of the puck. If you're going to slap it like that, then, you know what, you have to be in control of that puck. So it, it's a hockey play, but that's clearly written in the rule book. I think when people talk about, a hockey play, it's more has to do with collisions and, and things of that nature where players are in vulnerable positions, which Crosby was. Interesting stuff. Troy Smith, always like having you on. Thanks for doing this tonight. Appreciate Great. it. Thanks a lot, Scott. Appreciate it. it is, uh, it's, it's a discussion that certainly is uh, not going to go away because the Pittsburgh Penguins are now without their best player, more than likely the best player in the world, and the Washington Capitals' best player also one of the best players in the world, who committed the initial infraction, is still going to be playing. And so it's not going to go away. And look, I I understand. There is a different view on this, it seems, from those inside the game and those outside the game. I respect those inside the game. That's why I had Troy on tonight. I respect those people who play this game and have a viewpoint. I disagree with the initial part of it. I think that Alex Ovechkin 
for the slash that he delivered. If you have to be control in control of your stick not to knock a puck out of the air and over the glass, if you have to be in control of your stick that you can't lift your stick and catch a guy in the face and cut him and get a penalty, then surely you have to be in control of your stick if you're going to wind up baseball style and swing at the top of a guy's shoulders close to his head. And if you clank him in the head, surely that's got to be some kind of penalty or some kind of suspension. Surely that's the case. And I look at this and I think if, if I'm in charge of the NHL discipline right now, and I don't have, I, I don't have a dog in this fight. I am neither a Penguins fan nor a Capitals fan. I don't hate the Capitals. I don't hate the Penguins. I am, I am, I am agnostic to these teams. It's a good series. It's a good rivalry, but I don't have a favorite. I don't love one and hate the other. But if I'm in charge of NHL discipline, Alex Ovechkin is sitting the next game. If only one game, he's still sitting a game because he did something which was egregiously outside the rules of hockey. He swung his stick baseball style towards Sidney Crosby and made contact with Sidney Crosby's head. And if we're going to say you have to be in control of yourself, that is a serious flagrant penalty that deserves a suspension. Not everyone agrees. I don't know if Luke, do you agree or do you disagree? No, because... No, no what? Agree or disagree? I, I disagree with you about Ovechkin because I believe the initial slash was reckless, but he hit him fairly low on the upper body, if that makes any sense. And then the freak accident part comes where it bounces off of Crosby, back into Ovechkin, and then back into Crosby. And it's, you say freak accident, all the times that players lift the puck over the glass and get a penalty for that are all freak accidents but well, they are required but they are stupid re- rule. but they are required to be in control and yet we don't say well that was just a freak accident so we're going to overlook that rule the rule says you must be in control of your stick and Ovechkin was clearly not in control of his stick and the what he did was dangerous i i agree that it was dangerous but i believe what Niskanen did was more dangerous i, I, I the more i look at it the more i'm convinced that he didn't do it he didn't intentionally cross-check Sidney Crosby's head. But what he did But he do, saw an opportunity. He saw an opportunity to hit a guy that was coming towards him that didn't see him. Now, did he mean to hit him in the head? No, probably not. That's probably where... I'm not even Ovechkin. sure. i got to be honest with you. Sorry to interrupt. I'm not even sure he realized that it was Sidney Crosby as he was coming across. It was that just a too. guy in a black shirt. But all that mattered was it was a penguin coming across his vision, and he could give him a little whack with his hands to wherever part of his body, and it would probably be beneficial to the Capitals. So I don't think he intentionally meant to cross-check Sidney Crosby in the head, but I think that's the kind of reckless play that you deserve to be suspended for. Not, I, I know I've said before that I don't like suspending to the result, that if you suspend because of an injury, that's the wrong reason. But that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about suspending a guy because something he did was reckless and resulted in somebody getting hurt. We're not suspend. We're not saying Niskan and you're out until the Crosby comes back. I'm saying that, yeah, if Crosby had been straight up, he would not have gotten hurt by what Niskanen did, but he wasn't. And in the same way that what Troy talked about as a hockey play of a guy turning and getting boarded when you're, when you're, coming near the boards that's not a hockey play to my mind yes some cases are where you didn't see it coming but you still got to pay the price if you hit a guy in the numbers into the boards whether it was intent you intended to slam him head first in or whether it that's happened exactly, in the heat of the moment but that's exactly you're, you're now agreeing exactly with my point you're now saying exactly what i'm saying if that you must 
in hockey, in every single league in hockey, you must be in control. You can't just run around out there and then blame everybody for what happens if something goes wrong because, well, he made a turn at the last second. If you line a guy up and he turns, you still get a penalty for that if you hit him from behind and you drive him headfirst into the boards. You have to, and Alex Ovechkin swung his stick hard and high, dangerously, and caught Sidney Crosby in the head. If the rule says, if it's consistent that he is that you are supposed to be in control of your body, supposed to be in control of your stick, Alex Ovechkin, for that kind of play, should be sitting out a game. Now, I'm completely of the opinion that the NBA is absolutely the worst league in the world for protecting its superstars. Last night, I think someone pointed out to me that LeBron James, who was in the paint all night and didn't get his first foul until like midway through the fourth quarter. Like it was ridiculous. They just, they're not going to call something against a star. The NHL is not going to sit Alex Ovechkin for a suspension unless someone's head is lopped off their body. And then he might get five minutes. League's got to be very careful now all of a sudden of too much protecting of their superstars. It's okay to a small degree, but he was never, he, he's never going to be suspended. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. A Netflix series that has come out called 13 Reasons Why. You may or may not have heard about it. I'm guessing you probably have heard some discussion about this. It is, in short... A series about a high school student who is, who has been, who was treated very badly, sometimes exceptionally badly. This is a, I think it's fair to say a worst case scenario kind of situation in high school where she has been bullied to the point where she eventually commits suicide. And the 13 reasons why, the 13, she leaves a cassette tape outlining and each of those cassettes ta- cassette tapes is le- is left for a classmate or someone in her life who she explains why they are partially responsible for her death. It is definitely dark. There is no question it's dark. It is also very controversial, and here's why. Some people are saying this is a terrific tool to get people talking about the troubling issue of teen suicide and bullying and other difficult parts of young life now. I mean, we know suicide isn't just a youth thing, but a young life thing. Others are saying, no, no, this movie, this series is way too graphic, is way too intense and glamorizes in some ways suicide as the ultimate revenge fantasy that you did something to me. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to show you, I'm going to kill myself and then blame it on you and let you live with that. Well, you can see where this could be splitting the audience one way or the other. Dr. Daniel Reidenberg is the executive director of Suicide Awareness Voices of Education. SAVE is the anagram for that. He joins me now. Uh, Dr. Reidenberg, thanks for doing this tonight. Thanks for having me. Let's start right from the top on this one, right from point zero. Where do you stand on this? Because I know that this has been something that has to have been talked about in your world. Um, Where do you fall on this one? Well, I fall pretty clearly on the side that this is dangerous and this is risky. Um, if I can start with that argument, the first part of the argument that you mentioned, 
which is what the producers have come out and said. They intended for this to raise a conversation about suicide. It definitely has done that. The problem is that it hasn't raised the right conversation, nor has it done it in the right way. So while we want the conversation about suicide and mental health and some of the other issues depicted in this series, we want that talked about more to help change the environment for young people. You have to do it in a responsible way, and the way that it was done wasn't responsible. Okay, and I'm going to get. To, I want to get to all that, but there's a lot of stuff. But before I get there, because of what has happened, are you surprised at how big a deal this has become? Are you surprised at the amount of feedback? Because again, I'm guessing you've heard a lot of it. This has, to me, this it's a TV show, and I don't necessarily expect this amount of discussion and controversy. Are you surprised there's been this much? No, actually, I'm not. Not at all. Um, when you're talking about. Uh, depression is the leading disability in the world. We have millions of people living with various mental illnesses. Uh, bullying and harassment is a major issue in school. Uh, some of these things are, are the kinds of things that need to be brought into the, the conversation. And when they're brought in in a fashion like this that is so graphic and so sensationalized uh, and done uh, cinematically very well, the quality of the production is outstanding. When you put all of those things together uh, in a series like this, you're going to have a discussion about it. You just need to have the right one. What's interesting is, and maybe I'm not, I shouldn't be shocked that you have taken that position because the school board here has told the local teachers not to talk about this themselves. If a student comes up, they have a few talking points, but they're not supposed to use it as a teaching tool or to start themselves. The manager of um, social work services for the school board says this is not an appropriate springboard for discussion about suicide, bullying, sexual assault, because it could be harmful to people who see it. What would be, if, if I was someone who was in high school and I saw this, what would be harmful to me about seeing this show and the way it's presented? There are a number of things. The memorialization of her death and her locker and kids taking selfies in front of it is not something that's healthy for young people to see because they believe that that would happen to them, too, if they died by suicide. The uh, depiction that you can leave these tapes behind and uh, everybody is going to listen to them and you're going to become a big name and get your own television series is very difficult for kids to see. Young people really struggle to separate out fact from fiction. I've not only heard this from a number of young people, but even today I got a message from a young person who said to me, that person on the show, they picked one of the characters, they said, that's me, that's my life. And my response was, that isn't your life. That's what's depicted on the show. And they, they, they were resolute with me saying, no, that's me. They captured me. And when, we do, when, when a production comes out like this that makes it so dramatic for young people with the, the end result being death by suicide and there being no way out, they gave her no alternatives to live, we see increased risk of copycat suicide and contagion. Do, I mean, and I was going to ask you that. Do, do we have, beyond anecdotal, do we have evidence that when people see things like this that they do follow through and imitate these things? Absolutely. There are studies from around the world that demonstrate this. Just this afternoon, the president of the International Association for Suicide Prevention put out a briefing statement noting some of the research. 
goes back to 1988 and is current through today and current research that demonstrates an increased risk of contagion when watching fictional depictions of suicide. This is particularly true for young people. So we, we not only have anecdotal information about people that have attempted suicide following watching this, died by suicide watching this, had um, more hospitalizations increasing as a result of watching this, but we have research to support that this was going to happen. Is this just a youth situation? Because this is clearly a, a series that is a directed at a youthful audience, but do we have the same situations arriving? If there's a 45-year-old who's having trouble, would this? do you have the same concerns, or is this more your concerns more about teenagers and young people who see this? You know, and I'm really glad that you asked that. A very smart question. We do know from, from, from research that youth tend to be more at risk around contagion and copycat suicides from things like this. So we tend to focus on the youth around this because they're more sensitive to it. However, that doesn't mean that others aren't impacted by it. About a week and a half ago, I received a telephone call from a woman in the southern part of the United States who was 60 years old, who had just finished watching the entire series and became suicidal to the point of needing to go to the hospital. So while it's most sensitive around the youth, we do know that this can impact anybody who's vulnerable, who's at risk, who may have thought about suicide in the past, who's struggling with a mental health issue. This is risky for everyone. Can we really be surprised, though, that the people who would be behind this, the producers and the, and the folks who did this, would sort of brush off the criticisms? Because for how many years now, Doctor, has it been that people have said, well, when there is endless violence in the movies we watch and the TV shows we watch, that's potentially going to lead to some violent instincts or violent thoughts in some, not everybody, of course, but in some very, very, very small percentage of the audience. And that's always been poo-pooed. And yet here we are saying, of course, everybody who watches this is not going to become suicidal. But for some very, very, very small percentage, this could be a trigger. Is it? Are the two connected? Am I, am I making a leap here? Or does it make some sense that these things are sometimes, that Hollywood can have an impact on people's lives and their decisions? Hollywood and the general media absolutely can have an impact on people's life and decisions. We have more than 100 studies from around the world that demonstrate how media reports on suicide impacts whether or not there are going to be other deaths by suicide. Whether you take the case of Robin Williams or you take the case of other celebrities when they've died or you take other television shows, movies, we see an impact following that. So you're correct in the sense that uh, people have long said when you watch violence, especially from a very early age, and throughout your childhood and adolescence, you have a more increased risk and propensity towards violence. Uh, the same is true when it comes to suicide. The difference with suicide is that it's final. It's over when you're dead. And you can't come back to fix it. You can't just go to court. You can't go to therapy and try to get better once you're deceased. Do you... Uh when Robin Williams or when there's another celebrity, not a teenager necessarily, but a celebrity, when they have committed suicide, do we see suicides go up in the t short term yeah. afterwards? Yes, we do. Uh, when Marilyn Monroe died uh, in the 1960s, there was a 12% increase in suicides. 
We know we have data from the United States that demonstrates very clearly that after Robin Williams' death, not only did suicides go up uncharacteristically for the, the time of year, for August, but the manner in which he died increased in a way that was uncharacteristic for that time of year. So we know that these messages, when they go out, they have an impact, and it's often a negative impact on a certain proportion of people that are at risk. You mentioned a few minutes ago that one of the troubles, um, I'm trying to think of the right wording here that you used, that in the film, in the series, when there is a display, a demonstration put at her locker, when it, when she is remembered there, a memorial is set up at the locker, that that could be in. Uh, enticing, I guess, if someone feels lonely or they feel left out or they feel bullied and they feel this is the way they could be fondly remembered or somehow they could make a name for themselves, that's dangerous. But what happens in a school? Because surely I would guess almost every city, I would say every city is going to have some young people commit suicide and a school that then turns around and tells their students, you can't put a flower on the locker. You can't put a card on their locker. You can't memorialize them in some way and show your sympathy or your sadness. That school is going to look like the coldest hearted people. The administration is going to look like the meanest people on the planet. Correct. And it happens, unfortunately, all of the time because we don't recommend things like that because of the risk of death by other students. So what we recommend is that there be some other way that you honor and pay tribute to that student. But it should be done in the exact same way that other students are that have died in that school. We don't want suicide deaths to be separated out any other way. So we don't recommend that there be a locker permanently memorialized. We also recommend that families do private memorials. Now, they do that on their own. It could be in a public place, but that is typically how families respond when somebody dies. There isn't this um, overwhelming uh, immediate response in a school that you put up a big uh, tree or you put up a bench, you put up a big memorial for someone who's died by a car accident or any other way. It, it's not. They're put in the yearbook, but when it comes to suicide, there is this immediate shock and grief response that youth in particular have, and they do want to start that. So we recommend they do walks, they do runs, they volunteer, they get involved in their community, they start suicide prevention activities. Those are the healthy ways to memorialize and remember someone rather than setting up a locker and uh, decorating it. Just have a couple of minutes left here. One of the things, and I have not, I'll be honest with you, I haven't had time, I haven't seen the whole series, but one of the criticisms that has come out about it is the girl who kills herself in this series, it shows clearly that she has been bullied, that people have been mean to her, that things have horrible have happened to her. It underplays whether or not there was a mental health component to this. Do we see in suicide often people who are... I don't know how to even word this, otherwise mentally healthy, but have been bullied if they don't have depression, if they don't have something else, or or is this a far more complicated scenario that you have to put a number of these pieces together before you end up with someone making this decision? It's a both and. Uh, uh, 90% of the people we lose to suicide have a psychiatric illness at the time of their death. Could be undiagnosed or underdiagnosed, but it's, it's typically there. 
What we know is that there's never one thing, and this is really important for your listeners, it's never one thing that causes a suicide. It's not just the breakup of a relationship. It's not just getting kicked out of a class. There are multiple things that go into every suicide. So in in the case of Hannah in this school, there were a number of things. Rape, being bullied, there was sexting messages that went out. And very troublesome was never one time in the entire series is the word depression even mentioned. And as you stated, there is an underrepresentation of the fact that she was depressed, that she was in trouble, as were other students. And when they went to the counselor, it was completely dismissed. So these are some of the troubles and problems with the series that we, we have concerns about because we want kids that are in trouble or worried about a friend to go to an adult to get help. In this series, there was no place for them to go, and when the one place they did go, they were dismissed. So are the people behind the series, are the producers, are the directors, are the writers, are they irresponsible for the way they've put this out? Well, I mean, that, that's, a, that, that's a matter of opinion. <laughs> uh, you know, they, they definitely could have done some things differently that could have reduced the risk of harm uh, and loss of life to others. Uh, they could have done that. Uh, but anybody that produces a, a show, a series like this, can do that and do it responsibly. Finally, um, you and I chatting about this, all the other people chatting about this, I know you've given other interviews on this, none of that is going to stop people from watching this. In fact, probably, and we acknowledge this, by discussing this, it's probably going to drag more people to watch this. So what do you say then? When when people are going to sit down and watch this, are you saying don't? Are you saying watch it with a pair? What's the... What's the proper way to handle this then? Because it's out there and people are going to watch this. Correct. And what we're trying to stress is that parents watch it with their child, or if they have a child that's watched it already, make sure they have a conversation with them and not just one conversation, multiple conversations, because over time how the child interprets and perceives and thinks about that series could change. So it's not just a one-off conversation, but an adult must talk to those children who have seen this on their own. Alternatively, if parents can watch it with their child, episode by episode, stop it, talk to your children, make sure they understand the difference between fiction and reality. Make sure they understand who they can go to if they have a question, if they have a problem, that there are resources. And almost most importantly, we must get children to understand that Treatment is available, and help can can happen for people. They can recover. They don't have to end up like Hannah did. Dr. Daniel Reidenberg, the Executive Director of the Suicide Awareness Voices of Education, SAVE is the name of the group. I really appreciate the time today. Thanks for your insights on this. Thank you. Uh, it, it's, it's a, it is a really difficult one because this is a hugely popular series. It's, it is, there's so much conversation around this. There are so many people watching it. And this is really interesting. There was a story in the spec this week or last week, I can't recall, in the last few days anyway, that apparently there are anecdotal examples in this area, in the Hamilton area, of young people showing up at emergency departments saying the show was triggering them. Now, I am he is the expert on this. I'm not the expert on this. It would seem to me that if 
somebody was being triggered by this, there are pre-existing issues that probably need to be dealt with anyway. But it does suggest to me one of the things that Hollywood, that all of us in the media, I mean, there's a lot of stuff, but it has always been argued, always been argued. Oh, we can put whatever we want in entertainment. We can put as much violence and as much sex and as much everything in because it doesn't really have an impact. It's just entertainment. You're just watching it. It doesn't have any kind of, it's not going to make you do anything. How many times have we heard that argument when there's a movie that is just loaded with violence? And they say, oh, it's just entertainment. It doesn't actually affect anyone. And every time there is a shooting, every time there is a killing of some kind, every time something happens, it's always poo-poo. No, that wasn't the result of them playing violent video games or watching violent movies or anything else. That's always thrown away. Now, I agree that 99.999999% of the population can watch that stuff and not be affected. But if we're saying, and if the experts are saying that this kind of series can have an effect and can cause people who are in that 0.00001% to act in a way that is affected by this movie, why would we not say then, why would we not acknowledge that it can work the other way? It seems to me it seems to me that you can't have it both ways. Either entertainment, I use the word in quotes, either Hollywood, either the media, and I include myself, I include all of us, either the media can have an impact on you and cause some people to act in a certain way, or it can't. And what every expert, it seems, or at least a lot of the experts with this particular series are saying is, yes, it can. Well, that certainly, to me, has to raise some questions about the other side of the coin as well, about the other things that are being portrayed and whether they may be also having an effect. That's a discussion for another day, though. This one, fascinating. A lot of people with a lot of different opinions, certainly a show that is getting a ton of discussion and a ton of watches. And I don't think this will be the last time we talk about it because if everyone's correct, if there are anecdotal examples of people who this show is causing them to act in a certain way, we will not be hearing the last of this for a while, at least until it's been out there for a long, long time and people have stopped watching it. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.